Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. This week, I sat down with industry legend Deborah Burke to hear about the impressive span of her career. The Queens, New York born and raised architect talks imagining the inside of houses in her neighborhood as a teenager, her time at and continued love for RISD, going back to school to learn about urban planning and how she got involved with 21C hotels having never designed a hotel at that point. Today, she manages Deborah Birkin Partners alongside 10 other partners, covering everything from universities to high-end residential and hospitality. One's life should be the pursuit of the balance between generosity and fulfillment, says the Dean of Architecture at Yale. You're never going to find the answer, but if you keep looking for it, both you and others will benefit. Hi, I'm here with Deborah Burke. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. So good to see you. Good to see you too. So we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born in New York City and grew up in Queens, um, a neighborhood called Douglaston, where um, my mother lived for 55 years. She just died this year, not to bring on a sad note, but really it was a piece of my life from from the fifth grade uh, for the next 55 years. <laughs> yes, for sure. And did you always have a love of design or architecture growing up? Were you a creative kid? I was a creative kid from putting murals on the walls of my bedrooms to my parents' dismay. Uh, to very much being encouraged to be creative. My mother was a fashion designer and actually a professor at FIT uh, for many, many years. So creativity was part of the house I grew up in. You know, the dining table would be covered with drawing paper or with fabric, or we would be making sculptures out of uh, tin cans and and, uh, pieces of uh, you know, cardboard boxes and, and stuff like that. Yes. So everything we did was always creative. That's amazing. So how did you then kind of fall in love with architecture, find your path to architecture? You know, it's a great, that's a great question. And it really does relate to where I grew up. So this neighborhood called Douglaston in the northeast corner of Queens, that's sort of the furthest edge of New York City, um, is a neighborhood of single family houses that are built very close together, but the houses are all different. And I noticed this as a child. And in my early teens, I would walk around the neighborhood with a good friend who was a couple of years older, and he had already decided he was going to be an architect. And we would spend those summer nights, you probably remember the magical summer nights of being a teenager, right? Not the miserable ones, but the magical ones. Um, And we would walk around and we would look at the houses and we would try to figure out how they were laid out on the inside from what they looked like on the outside and what lights were on and what the shape of the rooms might be. And we would talk for hours and it was the most exhilarating evenings of my teenage years. And I remember after one of those walks uh, going home, I was maybe 14 years old and my parents said, uh, how was your night? And I said, my night was fantastic and I'm going to be an architect. (laughs) That's what was their reaction? Like, <laughs> um, their reaction was a uh, typical parental reaction, which is that's wonderful. We'll support you, and you really better keep doing well in school. You 
so how did you choose where you wanted to go to school after that kind of epiphany? What were your next steps and where did you end up going to school? So, um, in that era of my life, I went to New York City Public School. Then I went to an all-girls boarding school in Western Massachusetts for high school. And then perhaps in response to what an all-girls boarding school was like in that particular era, I decided that I was going to go to RISD, that I wanted to study architecture at an art school where ideally the student body was more crazy and more creative than I was. And maybe I was a little crazy and a, and a lot creative, but I wanted people who were even more so. So straight from high school, I went to RISD where they have a five-year um, Bachelor of Architecture program, which was what I wanted to do. I knew I was going to be an architect and I just wanted to start that education right away. And I loved my time at RISD. And I remain a loyal um, supporter of of that institution. And I think one of its great strengths is that no matter what you're going to study, whether you're going to be a fashion designer or a filmmaker or a photographer or a glassblower or a sculptor or an architect, a landscape architect, they offer many, many, many courses of study in the fine arts and the applied arts and the design and architectural professions that as freshmen, you all study together and you learn two-dimensional design, three-dimensional design, life drawing, nature drawing, all that stuff. But what you really learn is that you make friends and over the course of your time there, your friend who's a sculptor is going to criticize your design work and you as an architect might criticize somebody else's painting and you talk across creative disciplines. And I found that to be one of the most valuable things I learned there was cross-disciplinary exchange of ideas and criticism. That's cool. So you got different perspectives throughout your entire education. Exactly. Exactly. And with Brown right up the block and being able to take courses there, I mean, it was a really rich and wonderful environment. And Providence, Rhode Island is a pretty damn cool city. So that was also good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, can I ask about boarding school? What, like, did it instill anything to you or, you know, being in an all, you know, going from like New York City public schools to that? I mean, that must have been a big shift in your life. Well, you know, this was a long time ago, so the world was a different place. I mean, I suppose there were protests then. We were protesting the war in Vietnam. Um, I would say I met very different kind of people from very different backgrounds, from places other than New York City. So that was very valuable. But again, perhaps because of that time and because of what I was interested in being a more being more in the creative fields, I was rebelling against the limitations that that the school set up for us. You know, like you have to wear a skirt and your skirt has to touch your knees and you have to wear a bra. And, you know, you can only wear jeans on Saturdays if you're cleaning up after the dance. And, you know, sort of stuff that sounds so ridiculous today. Uh, but it was very good stuff to push up against um, and try to define what you really did believe in. And I will say that uh, my two closest friends in the world are are my friends, uh, two of my friends from boarding school. So we, we were rebelling together and that was, uh, that allied us as friends for 50 years. Amazing. Um, okay. So after architecture school, what was your first job? Um, I came, uh, back to New York and got a job in an architecture firm, uh, actually, my very first job, to be honest, was in an engineering firm because I couldn't find a job in an architecture firm. 
So I got a job in an engineering firm and I worked as an in-house graphic designer. Uh, the week before I got the job, one of my RISD friends who was a graphic designer taught me <laughs> not how to be a graphic designer in a week. That is not possible. And I don't mean to disrespect any graphic designers. It, uh, it is a noble profession. Um, but how to use the blue pen and the wax to glue things down. This is how long ago it was. We weren't doing anything on computers, uh, you know, press type and Pantone and that kind of stuff. And I went in and I worked as a graphic designer until I could get a job in an architecture office. And I started hanging out at a place called the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies, Peter Eisenman's think tank, um, because graphic design in an engineering firm was not intellectually rewarding enough or creatively rewarding enough for me. So I, I wanted lectures and a more stimulating environment. Um, and ended up with an architect by the name of Larry Kutnicki proposing to the Institute that they needed a program for high school students, that they offered programs for college students and for the general public, but not for high school students. And so they agreed and we started this educational program for high school students. And that's really what got me into teaching about design and architecture. And I guess eventually got me to where I am today, um, <laughs> you know, as a dean at Yale, but that started way back then. That's great. What was that like? I mean, getting to work with him and work with all these students? Um, it was exhausting, exhilarating, exciting, just like teaching remains, um, yep. <laughs> exhausting, <laughs> exhilarating, and, and exciting. And I was young, you know, I was in my early 20s when I got out of architecture school. So, Talking to high school students didn't feel like that much of a stretch. It was more like, boy, nobody was talking to me about this stuff when I was in high school. And I so wish, wish somebody had been right. uh, that I found it meaningful and fulfilling to try to do that for others not that much younger than myself. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So how long did you do that and where did you go from there? Um, did that for a few years and ended up actually leaving the engineering firm and working at the Institute full-time as an administrator running all of their educational programs. Uh, sort of somewhat hung out my own shingle as an architect and had a tiny little practice that was me, you know, and then me and somebody else. Um, went back to school at City College uh, to study urban planning um, because I love cities and I felt that much of what gets built in cities is not determined by the architect, but actually determined by codes, decisions, banks, neighborhoods, you know, a lot of decisions being made by others. Right. Um, and I wanted to understand how that worked. Um, and then after I did that, um, I opened a practice. I went to teach at the University of Maryland and I opened a practice in Washington, D.C., and started doing houses at Seaside in there Florida. Yeah. Okay, before Long we go, yeah, before <laughs> we're we go all in, over the place now. No, I love it. So, okay, before we go into Seaside, I, I really love what you said about urban, urban planning that there's so many hands making decisions before even you know an architect. What did you take away from that experience, and how has that helped or shaped how you work moving forward? Uh, boy, um, I would say what I took away from studying urban planning was not that I was going to be a planner. I don't have uh, really the right personality, but what I understood was how long and complex the process is 
before the architect even gets called. Um, you know, from mapping streets and meeting with communities to the role of banks, the role of legislators, the role of uh, highway builders and federal funds and state funds and local funds and environmental concerns. I mean, the list is very, very, very long before there's a piece of property uh, controlled by one organization that can in turn say, and now we're going to do a building. Now, do I think this is right? No, I think the architect should be involved in the conversation much earlier. And what is happening nowadays, uh, that process, I think all of those steps in the process have gotten a bit more porous in a good way, that more people can chime in. Um, and that is making, when I say our cities, I'm thinking primarily of Western what the west cities of the western world uh how decisions get made in other cities and other in other cultures it's a little harder certainly for me to talk about i don't have enough uh knowledge or experience so uh i i, I don't want to be misquoted or misunderstood in in what i'm talking about but what i really got from it um now looking back many decades is uh learning to listen learning to listen to lots of different voices coming from lots of different backgrounds as part of a necessary decision-making process. Do I wish there were ways to speed it up? Yep. Do I wish there were ways to make it more inclusive? Absolutely. Um, but I think the lesson for everybody should be to listen and be uh, prone to action after listening. So going back to Seaside, what was it like building that? I mean, that was a really cool, com I don't want to call it complex, but, you know, like area of houses. Um, so it's Seaside uh, is a planned community, the yep. first sort of built example of the new urbanism. And I guess I consider it was a great experience for me because I was building houses, freestanding houses um, on relatively affordable budgets such that I could learn about construction. I would consider my relationship to the new urbanism, and I've said this many times before, to be that of the loyal opposition. I mean, I believe that houses on streets close together is a better way to make a community than um, you know, condominiums going higgledy-piggledy around the edges of golf courses pretending to be nature. But that said, most of the new urbanism has resulted in communities of a kind of fake oldness, and that I don't like. And maybe that even gets all the way back to my childhood in this neighborhood where the houses were all different um, right. instead of abiding by a kind of design code. So I can I. I buy into a code about massing. I buy into the making of a street. Uh, I buy into density and uh, landscape. Lots, lots of trees are a good thing, um, but uh, not to a dictatorial approach to style. Right. No, that makes so much sense. So what do you think was so successful about the way you approached or, you know, the finished project, product that is Seaside? Well, I think the work that I did in the early years of my career down at Seaside was pretty reductive. So some of the houses at Seaside have more curly cues on them, um, are more articulated massing, and I think mine are quite 
uh, distilled. Um, I mean, they're pitched roof buildings, so this isn't to pretend that they are flat roof modernism, but they are a distillation of uh, a regional architecture as opposed to uh, a Baroque version of a regional architecture. Got it. And do you think this helped put you as an architect on the map or how did you start to kind of evolve your practice from there? That's a good question. I don't, I'm not sure I've ever thought about it that way. You know, I worked for KPF briefly. I worked at the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies, as I said, as a teaching job that helped subsidize my, um, my practice. I then got a job teaching at the University of Maryland, where I was in a tenure-track position and doing houses at Seaside. So teaching and building were sort of always two parts of, of my life. But you're sort of taking the approach to what I did at Seaside and asking whether it led to or it was already part of how I thought about the world aesthetically. And I would say something about my my background. I was raised a Congregationalist. That's a, a not a religious person. I'm not observant in any way, but I was raised going to a congregational church, which is a churches with no stained glass windows that are painted all white. They're mm -hmm. really severe and austere. I think that had a lot to do with my childhood aesthetic um, that I have brought forward with me. So I like things that are beautifully made, but not flamboyant. Um, I like things that fit into their surroundings. And I always have, a, in a way that is not cookie cutter and not slavish, I use the expression that the buildings that we design here in the office need to be of this time. So reflecting how we do things today, our social responsibilities, our environmental responsibilities, the way we live, the way we function. But of this, of this place, wherever the building site might be, and I am not a believer in what I call uh, spatula architecture. That would be a building that you could slide a spatula under, lift it up, plop it down somewhere else, and nothing would change. Um, I mean, I'd like to believe that that the buildings that we design, you can't even move them 20 feet before they right. wouldn't feel right. Like they're so tied in to where they are. Yeah. I love that spatula. <laughs> it's a criticism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got it. Yes. <laughs> 100%. Um, so, you know, you're teaching at Maryland. You worked on Seaside. Where do you go from there? Or how did you start to kind of grow your, um, your practice? Um, I was recruited to apply for a position at Yale mm -hmm. and got that job. And that allowed me to move back to New York to be closer to my family, which meant something. Um, so came back to New York in the very late 80s um, and opened a, a practice here. I still was doing the occasional house in Seaside, teaching at Yale and doing projects in and around the New York area, you know, loft renovations <laughs> and uh, um apartments and, and small houses um, at that, in that chapter of my career. Yeah. And what do you think was your big break? Like really kind of set your um, career towards the way, you know, in the 
way that it's going now or in the to get to where you are today? Am I allowed to say I'm still waiting for my big break? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I would say um, in terms of uh, sort of expanding the kinds of projects uh, that uh, we did from just residential, small-scale residential, um, among the things that happened uh, was the 21C Museum Hotels, which didn't happen in, in the early 80s, but but um, happened in the early 2000s. Um, that was a change. And starting to do uh, non-residential work that related to schools and to education and to organizations, uh, that was also a change because it al- uh, allowed a different program type, a different conversation to be had. And as I said, since I care about listening, uh, talking to larger and more diverse groups of people was a satisfying, not so much change as just uh, expansion of what we were doing. Got it. And so let's talk about 21C Hotels for a minute. How did you meet the founders, uh, Steve Wilson and Laura Lee Brown? How did you were, how did you get introduced to them or pulled into um, their world and what they're about to create? This is a good story. I tell this story to students actually uh, with some frequency because uh, because there are many lessons in it. So as I was saying, we started doing more non-residential work, small things that smaller projects that related to the arts. And we were invited to interview for a museum for Kentucky crafts. Uh, in downtown Louisville. It was an adaptive reuse project and um, went and interviewed and didn't get the job. Okay, that happens. You know, one thing, as you, you sort of get more breaks, you realize that you compete against more people um, and it's harder to get work, actually. Um, and maybe two years later, the phone rings uh, and it's Steve Wilson. And he says, you don't know me, but we met. Um, I was on the conference phone in the middle of the table, not in the room, when you interviewed for the Craft Museum. I'm sorry you didn't get the job, but uh, I'd like to talk to you about designing a hotel. I said, wow, that's fantastic, but I've never designed a hotel. And he said, that's okay. I've never owned one. Um, (laughs) And so we started a conversation about not a hotel like the Waldorf Astoria or like the Marriott or like the Red Roof Inn, but actually a hotel that would be a place for Steve and Laura Lee to to show their art, not as a marketing strategy, but as a genuine sort of part of who they are as people and what they wanted to bring to help revitalize downtown Louisville. And originally, there was just going to be one because that was where they were from. And they owned these old, you know, 19th century brick warehouses on Main Street. And they wanted to put them to use. So we tackled how to turn those buildings into a, a hotel that also had appropriate space to really show art, not just to decorate the hallways, but to actually be galleries, right. real museum quality galleries that would be open 24 seven. 
365 like a hotel. Um, and it was so successful um, that other towns, other cities came knocking and they're like, we want one of these. Um, so that's, but that's how it started through <laughs> two, three passionate people or more than that, a passionate firm and two passionate collectors and their team, uh, none of whom had done this before, but who were hell bent on doing it and doing it right. <laughs> Going to figure it out together. Yeah. I mean, for those that don't know, Steve and Laura Lee, how would you describe them? Because I, they're some of my most favorite humans, but I'm... they are extraordinary people. They are Kentucky natives, uh, Steve from a farming family and Laura Lee from a prominent Louisville family um, who are passionate about preserving rural landscape, uh, revitalizing dense cities, not sprawl, who collect challenging, um, political, sexually provocative uh, art of the 21st century, hence the name 21C Museum Hotels. Um, they are fun. <laughs> they are passionate. They are generous uh, visionaries. Yeah. Extraordinary people. Um, so, okay. So you decide to go move forward and partner together how did you approach your first hotel that wasn't just a hotel? I mean, there's so many other things you had to think about, you know, in terms of the building, of the function, of the meaning. Um, how did you approach it? So the 21C Museum hotels actually were the perfect coming together of many things that I'm passionate about and has led to many other, many other projects. Um, one of them, of course, is art and art that is accessible to everybody. Um, and the other is adaptive reuse. So with the exception of the one in Bentonville, uh, all of the 21Cs that we have worked on are adaptive reuse of old buildings. I think there are eight of them. Um, but uh, I... Adaptive reuse is a form of sustainability. There's a lot of embedded energy in an old building. There's also the character of an old building uh, that means something to a community. And as we were talking about before, there is this idea that you can bring a 21st century or a, uh, a use of this time to a thing of another time. Mm -hmm. you know? So uh, with Stephen Laura Lee on the 21Cs, it was... How do we show the art? How do we make uh, the hotel hospitable, uh, you know, a place where people want to come? Um, and how do we sort of build on the bones of, of an old building, but make something entirely new? Yeah. Is there one hotel that you're most proud in this collection of um, hotels? Because right, we've done some other hotels. Yeah, that exactly. Aren't of 21 C specifically. Yeah. Is there one that, I don't know, not that you're most proud of, but, you know, you found as, you know, the most challenging success that turned out to be the biggest success, or maybe you do have a favorite. I know it's like picking a child, but. It, it is a little bit like picking a child. It's hard for, I don't want to insult any city because I've enjoyed getting to know all the cities that we've done them in. But I will say this for many of them, like the like Louisville, which was warehouses or Lexington, Kentucky, which was a McKim Mead and White bank or 
Durham, uh, which was a Shreve, Lamb, and Harmon bank. Um, Oklahoma City was a Ford assembly plant by Albert Kahn. And instead of being kind of tight, where you had to figure out how you're going to squeeze in all the rooms, it was vast, just this enormous building, literally big enough to drive Model Ts around inside of, because that's what they did there. Um, Model Ts would arrive sort of flat pack would be the word we would use today and, you know, be assembled in in this plant for regional distribution. I was owned by the same family who had many generations in. Um, and what to do with this enormous building to make it hospitable uh, right. and still celebrate its extraordinary, you know, these immense octagonal columns with tulip-shaped tops and long hallways and big, big, big industrial windows. That was, that was truly exhilarating to yeah. work on that building. Sure Have you been there? Um, I haven't been there. I've seen the photos. Um, but you got to go. Yes, I will. Um, and what's it like creating something that is welcoming and warm, but also can be a showcase for contemporary art? You know, I mean, sometimes a lot of people don't put two and two, to those two things together. Um, but somehow these hotels, uh, I've stayed in many of them, um, and you're just, it's, they just have this amazing feeling when you walk in, right? Like they're a hotel, but there's so much more and they're so uh, intriguing every, you know, everywhere you go, there's something new and the buildings are so special. So uh, I think you touched on some of it there by saying the buildings are so special. They're not, they're not, they're unexpected. And I think that intrigues people. It grabs their curiosity. It makes them want to explore. And the exploration isn't nervous making. It's actually, you're encouraged to do it. Some of the hospitality, we as designers can't remotely take credit for. The people are nice. You know, um, your reception is warm. The food is good. Um, but, But I think from a design standpoint, it's that the buildings encourage you to be curious and whether it's curious about the art or um, curious about the space or curious about the transformation, I think that's what makes you feel welcome and like, oh, I want to poke around and look around the back of that to see maybe I'll understand what that once was. Yeah. But I think too, you and your team have edited yourself so well that you let the building speak, right? And let the art speak, which is hard, right? And sometimes in design, you know, um, but here less is definitely more. Yeah, well, I think it's knowing what to celebrate of what you find, like, you know, 12 different layers of paint that you kind of get to see all of them as they're coming off and what to hide, like some of the ugliest tile patterns you've ever seen. It's like, (laughs) nobody should see this, so we're going to cover it. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, find the gems and the... Exactly. <laughs> Celebrate the gems and, and hide the ick. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, another really interesting building that you got to work with, too, that I love is the Richardson Olmsted campus. It was a Kirkbride hospital. And in the 1870s and 80s, the United States built, I think, hundreds of these hospitals in some ways, I'm no historian, uh, but post-Civil War, there was a fair amount of post-traumatic stress disorders, what we would call it today. But communities and individuals 
kind of ruined by the the carnage of of the war mm-hmm. um, against one's fellow Americans, right? So it was a complicated time. So these um, Kirkbride was a psychiatrist or a pre psychiatrist psychiatrist who who came up with a floor plan for how people uh, should be brought back to good mental health. Um, and various different architects were hired to essentially take the floor plan and turn it into a building. And in Buffalo, New York, uh, the state asylum uh, was designed by H.H. Richardson. And it is, it was and is an absolutely extraordinary building. Um, enormously long uh, with wings going, you know, block after block after block, um, and a center building, which is where there was chapel and food and and the center of the organization. The building was abandoned by the state of New York, um, not as long ago as you might imagine when you see this thing, but um, late middle 20th century, after additions and transformations were made to it that weren't very good. A few of the furthest bays of the longest wing were torn off and a new hospital was built, a psychiatric hospital. And then the building was left to ruin. And to what we were talking about much earlier in our conversation, members of the community fought for 20 years to save this architectural monument that also tells a lot of different pieces and parts of history that I was just describing briefly and without historical expertise uh, to you. And they succeeded, and eventually New York State uh, offered additional funding to give it a new use. So we only restored a part of it, the center building and one wing to each side, um, to be a conference center and hotel. And with the SUNY campus, uh, University of Buffalo nearby, Um, There was a reason to have a conference center. There were plenty of guest speakers, visiting faculty, and others coming. Um, Buffalo is a wonderful city with a lot of great architecture. Um, So it made sense. The program program actually made sense. But when we first went into the building, you could feel the generations of not always happy history and lives that that were there. But the majesty of the building, so you wanted to offer peace somehow, uh, but still celebrate the majesty of of the Richardson building. Amazing. Did you, were there any interesting finds when you started uncovering that? uh, Very thick walls. (laughs) Very, very, it's load-bearing masonry building. Very thick walls. The rooms were teeny. So we had to, what had been patient rooms, we had to break down the walls in between them, but we couldn't take down too many walls because of the building's kind of structural simplicity, right? It just was load-bearing. And the hallways were enormously wide, much wider than you, wider than the hall, than the rooms. Um, but that was part of the cure. The hallways faced south and they were single loaded. And the idea was that the sun would come in and you would sit in the hallways during the day and sleep in your uh, hospital room at, at night. So we kept the hallways. It's the least efficient hotel plan you could ever imagine, but it's important to tell the history of the building. Right. Uh, you work across so many different design disciplines. What attracts you or what do you love about hotel design? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
this may go back to my childhood, like the yeah. beginning of our conversation did. My father for a while ran the New York City Hotel Association. And oh. even though I had a modest childhood, uh, we stayed in a lot of hotels. And uh, I loved the excitement of staying in a hotel and seeing how the bedrooms were different in each one, how the lobby was different in each one, how the restaurant was decorated differently in each one. What was the lighting like? How many windows did your bedroom have? Did your bathroom have a window? Um, was the carpet fluffy or flat? You know, I, I noticed everything about these hotels as a child. Then I didn't do much with hotels. But when we started with Steve and Laura Lee, when we did the work for the James, um, when we did... Um, you know, uh, Hotel Henry up in uh, Buffalo, and we're now doing a, a hotel on the University of Virginia campus, and we just did a guest house for the University of Pennsylvania. So that's also at now a happy overlap of the relationship between higher education and hospitality. Um, I feel, and of course, with the extraordinary creativity of of my partners and and the design team here at the office, that there's both a connection to my childhood and then a big look forward in the 21st century of, you know, how are we staying in these places today? Right. So many questions off of that. So was there one hotel that you remember the most staying in in New York with your dad? You know, the one that I remember the most clearly was not actually in New York. It was in old Atlantic City. Oh. Not as old as Boardwalk Empire. I'm not, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um, (laughs) But when the grand old hotels were still there, and it was a place called Chalfont Haddon Hall. And I just remember that, and I don't even know if this is accurate. It's what I remember, whether it's accurate or not, is that in this enormous bathtub in this hotel room that my brother and I had to share, we were little, really little, is that you could have either salt water or fresh water in your bathtub. And I just thought that was the damn coolest thing ever. <laughs> that is cool. Somebody should bring that back. <laughs> we should bring that back. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and then talking about this new project where you're melding, you know, your love of um, teaching with your love of hotels and architecture. What are you trying to create for this campus? Like, how are you rethinking what it should be or just celebrating what the campus is? I think what when we think about education, particularly college education, we tend, and I say we very broadly, think about students and faculty, but what university campuses really are, are multi-generational and multicultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, so multi-generational in that you have elderly uh alumni population, and you have not just the 18-year-olds who are starting college, but their younger siblings who come along to drop off and pick up and homecoming. Uh, You have faculty, postdocs, graduate students. So you have the cross of of generations and of, of memories, particularly of the older generations. And then you have, thanks to, I think, all of the wonderful aspects of uh, university education in the United States, which is something I think we do really, really well. Um, You have first-generation students, someone who's never been to college before. You have somebody whose great-grandparents went to the university, and they come with the memories, not just 
their own, but of what their grandparents are told them. Um, you have people from around the world coming to American universities, maybe never been to the States before, never been on a college campus before, overlapping with people who maybe went to a prep school somewhere. So that mixture, that huge um, opportunity for interaction, I think is what makes universities great. But interestingly enough, it's also what makes hotels great, right? <laughs> Which is you never know who's going to yeah. be in the lobby. So, so to do those things together, um, I think is really to make a place hospitable to as many people as possible uh, in the most, uh, in the most welcoming way, you yeah. know, design and content. Makes sense. And you mentioned your partners and your firm. Can you tell us a little bit about who and what Deborah Burke and partners is today? So we are, uh, I have 10 partners in addition to myself, which sounds like a lot for, you know, a, a medium sized firm. Um, we have different areas of expertise, but we are very good at collaborating with each other. And that includes criticizing each other, uh, each other's creative work, because I think that makes it better. So some people here do primarily high-end residential, other people do university work and arts-related work, and then others do hospitality. Um, and that isn't to say that people are narrowly slotted. In fact, I often tell people that the work we do in different areas informs um, across building types. So if you're doing, you know, a private house for somebody and they're interested in, in this finish or this sink that makes it sound very detailed and small or this size window or this way of looking, you can bring that to a hospitality work or you can bring what you've learned in doing a hotel to how you might tackle contemporary problems of a dormitory or residential college. Um, so the, the cross-program type uh, exchange of knowledge is really useful for us inside the firm. Yeah, and it brings you back to what you did at RISD in a way, right? Where you yeah. you learn from others. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you're now the dean, or you are the um, dean of architecture at Yale. I mean, what does that mean to you? How are you trying to evolve, um, you know, what is taught in architecture and, you know, propelling the, the, the industry or the discipline forward? Um, well, it's, it's an honor to have the job. I'm the first woman to have the job. There are a number of other women deans at Yale, also the first women to hold those positions. And it's been a pleasure to work with all my colleagues, but particularly uh, with, with my uh, female colleagues, we are supportive of each other. Um, the, Yale is a strong design school. It has been for a long time. I do not want to upend that. I want to add to that. Um, and I have, I think, I've been dean for five years now. Went very quickly. Sorry, <laughs> um, when I said you are, well, you are. Yes. Yeah, I am. Right. It's been for a while now. Um, add to that uh, a greater and deeper study of the relationship between sustainability, the climate crisis, and the built environment, and greater focus on and connection to 
urban design and urban planning and the role of the building in the city. Um, and to make it possible in hopefully ways that an institution like Yale can for people from very diverse backgrounds to become to make uh, to become architects, you know, to give them the opportunity to enter the profession, and that's primarily through financial aid. Yeah, love it. And as you know, as the first woman to hold this title, and there, um, the other deans that you are collaborating with, how are you thinking about you know helping more women get into this field of architecture and get to the higher levels of architecture? Uh, I don't have an easy, ready answer for no. that. No, no. Um, <laughs> to to listen, provide support, be a mentor, not be the only mentor, actually encourage others to be mentors um, and to be available to uh, provide advice, insight, you know, give it forward, I guess, because people yep. gave it forward to me. So yeah. to keep doing that. Speaking of which, did you have any mentors along the way? Um, well, Judy Wolin, when I was at RISD, uh, was certainly a wonderful teacher and advisor. Um, Tom Beebe, who was the dean at Yale, who hired me and who really was an example of how to be a humanist dean. Bob Stern, who has given me advice about office structure. Um, you know, our architecture is very different, but he is a good friend and, uh, and a good person. Um, and he was a very good dean, although we do things very differently. Um, and my mom. And my mom, who is like, you can be creative and you can be a generous person at the same time. Love it. I'm so sorry about your loss this past year. Thanks. She had a good long life. So looking back, what has been one of your most memorable experiences of architecture? Something that you saw or changed you either growing up or recently or? You know, it's funny because much of my talk in the beginning of our conversation was about the ordinary and the everyday life, you know, modest houses in a, in a neighborhood in Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, but often when people talk about architecture, they talk about monumental buildings, you know, cathedrals and libraries and museums. Um, and I think maybe that building for me in my young, many younger years was the first time I went to the Exeter Library. Um, I didn't know what to expect. Um, I think it opened in 71, so this is a long time ago. And I was jaw-droppingly overwhelmed by the power of the space inside that building. Um, and it's funny, you know, I grew up in New York, so I had Grand Central Terminal or the Metropolitan Museum of Art or, you know, whatever big spaces that move people. Um, but I went there and knew that I wanted to find the balance in my own creative work between the monument and the everyday. Yeah. And to know that they're not interchangeable and not every building should be a monument, but some buildings must be monuments um, as works of architecture. Um, So that was life-changing. And I vividly remember taking my daughter there. She's now grown up, but then you're taking her there when she was in a stroller and going right to the 
center of that space and watching her as a little girl, right? So still in a stroller, um, go from being sort of fussy and cranky to, ooh, maybe just experiencing mommy's ooh, but also, I hope, finding in that space a kind of ooh of her own. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Did she follow in your footsteps? Uh, she is going into planning, so oh. somewhat. Love it. Um, is there a part of the process um, that you love the most? You know, is it the initial beginnings of a building? Is it the end result? Is it somewhere in between? It is very much in the beginning. The first, con- the co- the first conceptual visioning of it, um, and it is near the end as it comes together. We're doing. Um, two big residential colleges at Princeton now. Um, They are well up out of the ground and being clad in their bricks. Um, Figuring out with a big team we have working on this project, it's a big project, it's, you know, a thousand beds, um, how it would integrate with the site, how it would accommodate this very complex program of residential colleges um, was a fabulous, engaging challenge. And then to go there and see it out of the ground and engaging the ground at the same time was exhilarating. So I think there are many people who do the middle phases of the process better than I do. Um, But the moments that give me joy are at the beginning and at the end. Creative joy, I should say. I appreciate the skills of others in other aspects of it. Do these buildings also have a a lot of communal space as well as the thousand room? I mean, how's that changing? How have you seen that evolve? Well, I think uh, a residential college is different than a dormitory because it has more communal and shared spaces and it is about a kind of form of residential life. Um, But I think the way colleges and universities now are thinking student life as, as they look forward is less about proscriptive places that tell you what to do and more about spaces that allow a variety of activities and exchanges and interactions uh, to be possible. So you don't want the, the prefect who has the key to the locker with the ping pong paddle, right? None of that. You more want a table that can be put to a bunch of different uses um, because that will really allow different activities to flourish. Got it. And what else are you thinking about coming off of this year, this, whatever you want, <laughs> unprecedented, crazy... You know. Hugging everybody I see, yeah. uh, even yeah. people I don't know, you know? <laughs> uh, what am I thinking about? Um, you know, it's interesting. I've had a lot of questions over the past year about... Um, How's life going to be changed? What have we learned? Um, and once we get over our uh, enormous enthusiasm for being out and about again, for seeing each other in person, for being able to hug, for going into a restaurant, to, you know, for all of that, um, I'm a little worried we're going to forget how precious. Uh, meaningful human interaction is as we start to take it for granted again. So 
I'm not a public health expert, and um, I a lot of people are talking about the work from home and what happens to office space, and you know, buying buying clothing without going into a store, and all of that's somewhat interesting. But those changes were happening anyhow, and they were accelerated by the pandemic. I think what I am much more interested in now is making sure that the things we realized we missed so much, human interaction, sharing a meal, um, exchanging ideas, giving a desk crit, you know, speaking as an architect and an educator, that we don't forget how precious those things are and how important they are. No, I think that's very true. Not to take it for granted again. <laughs> yeah, not to take it for granted again. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so tell us one thing that um, most people don't know about you. <laughs> um, that I meditate by swimming laps. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, because I when when you swim... Yeah, I'm not the world's best swimmer, but I could swim slowly for a really long time. And I find you can't look at your phone. Yeah, you can't look at your computer. You can't talk to anybody, and so you just either think or think about nothing. Yeah, and I find it the greatest way uh, to disengage from all the different pressures of my life. I love that. That's amazing. And hopefully you have a pool that you can access. <laughs> yes, or one tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I hate to end this, but uh, keeping in mind time, we always end this podcast with um, the title of the podcast. So what has been or what is your greatest lesson or lessons learned along the way? Wow. Greatest lesson learned is that uh, life should be, one's life should be the pursuit of the balance between generosity and fulfillment, self-fulfillment and extroverted generosity. And you're never going to find the answer, but if you keep looking for it, both you and others will benefit. <laughs> Very true. Well, thank you. This was such an honor and a pleasure to get to spend the last uh, call it hour with you. So thank you for yeah. taking the time to be with us today. It was so much fun. Thank okay. you. Well, real thank pleasure. You. Hopefully we'll see each other in real life soon. For <laughs> a hug. Yeah, Look exactly. forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.